From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that will drink any beer if it's thirsty enough. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Keystone Species. See what I did there with Keystone? I and see, I see what you did there. Yeah. I see what you did there. Yep. Keystone Light is always smooth and 4.1% alcohol by volume. Oh, and good. It's not been discontinued yet. It's still a thing out there, apparently. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> but we're not talking about that yeah. kind of keystone. No, no, actually. We're talking about this concept of keystone species, which is, I think, one of the most beloved of the theoretical concepts by ecologists. Well, and I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the history of the development of where this idea came from and uh, what it is, and maybe end with kind of a modern updating or understanding of keystone species. Cool. So you so. you might say this is a keystone theory in ecology. <laughs> you might say that. Yes. <laughs> All right. I'll shut up. So yeah, I know. Get us started. What What's the main concept here? Well, we're going to be talking about food webs. And so it might be helpful to just introduce the idea of food webs. I think it's one of those terms that many people have probably heard, but maybe not thought a whole lot about what that actually is. Okay. And a food web is simply a representation of who is eating whom within a given place and time. And so if you have sort of like a little diagram with all of your different species or all of your different guilds, species that kind of make their way in the world in the same way. And you draw arrows representing, well, this thing is eaten by this thing and this other thing is eaten by this other thing and so on and so forth. And so a fly little... is eaten by a spider. Yeah. So the fly eats the eats the flower and the spider eats the fly and maybe a an insectivorous bird eats the spider and okay. then a hawk eats the bird and so on and so forth. And yeah. and this can branch out in all sorts of different directions because you could have lots of things eating the spider and correct. And that's why it's it's this web idea that it's it's kind of branching out in not just right. in one way but in lots of different directions. Yeah, not just a chain, but actually more properly understood as a web. Okay. And what we've been describing then gets at the idea of trophic levels. And so these are just basically the steps in that web. So the lowest trophic level, first trophic level being the producers, like the plants. Okay. The second trophic level being the things that eat the plants. The third trophic level being the things that eat the things that eat the plants and so on. So that's the concept okay. of trophic levels. But none of that per se is about a keystone species, but it's the context within which a keystone species is embedded. And so we'll come okay. back at the end to this idea of a food web again, and we'll see how it is that some pieces of that food web may be more important than or have outsized effects on the rest of that food web. Okay. And so I thought it'd be interesting to come at this from kind of a historical perspective and see where the ideas came from. And so to do this, we need to time travel back to the middle of the 1900s. I was going to do that. Who were you? <laughs> I was waiting for you to pause long enough for me to. Okay. Okay. I'll pause. Well, no, it's, it's over now. All right. We'll do it together. All right. Okay. That joke's probably for about two people, me and you. <laughs> and that's fine, I think. I... Right. <laughs> so, but in the, the middle of the 1900s, there was a lot of 
not just cultural and political stuff going on, but there was also a lot of scientific ferment in lots of different fields. And so like in physics, it was the beginning of the space race and all of the engineering and physics discoveries that went on from that. And And nuclear and nuclear, right. And in chemistry, in the first half of the 1900s, the development of this process of fixing atmospheric nitrogen into a form of nitrogen that was actually usable by plants. And so Mm. suddenly we could take the bulk of what the atmosphere is made of and make it into something that plants could use. And so that process had become more widely used and it was starting to help avert a possible global food crisis. And so, you know, because that's that's fertilizer. Exactly. That fertilizer and continuing with this idea of a lot was going on in science, biochemistry and molecular biology had figured out the structure of DNA. DNA as the molecule of inheritance. I've heard of that. And this was true of ecology as well. It was a, it was transitioning from this era that was largely descriptive natural history, where right. natural historians is probably what they would have thought of themselves as were, you know, going out and describing who lived where and a little bit about who was interacting with whom, but mostly it was just kind of descriptive. But by the first half of the 1900s, though, the field started to become more quantitative and experimental, more hypothesis testing and theory based. So like models of predator prey interactions and competition had been developed like in the 1930s and by the mid 1950s, 60s, there were actually starting to be empirical research that was discovering the ecological contexts in which those mathematical models seem to apply. Hmm. And so... So these models have a lot of different variables in them. Mm-hmm. And then you're saying, well, let's actually test... Like like we've talked about disease vectors and so forth, that right. diseases make people sick, but then also as people get over it, then they have immunity to it and mm-hmm. all these different variables going in there. And you're saying... At this point, they're like, all right, let's just not have these just random numbers that we threw in here. Let's actually do some testing of those. Yeah. Let's see if this math actually bears any resemblance to the real world. This is perhaps a whole other episode, but it was interesting how difficult it was to first be able to get some of these mathematical models to actually work out in real living systems. So that that's a whole other interesting can of worms. And then another thing that was happening at this time is that for the first time, people, including scientists, most scientists are people too, were seeing pictures of the whole world thanks to the space program. Like ah, okay. up until this time, the most that anybody could have possibly seen of the earth was from climbing up to a high mountaintop or something and then just looking out at the horizon in all directions Mm-hmm. And even then, you can see a lot, but even then, it's just a tiny speck of a fraction of the overall surface of the Earth. But then for the first time, suddenly we could see the whole thing. Yeah, even right. if you're in an airplane, yeah. you're only seeing a short distance there. Right. And so that, I think, affected people in a big way. It, I think it helped galvanize an environmental movement, and it also made ecologists start thinking more about really large-scale processes Hmm. that might be going on. And so one of those questions that arose in this era is, why is the earth green? So we're seeing these images and yes, you know, most of it's blue because it's covered in ocean, but the land masses have 
lots and lots of green. Mm. And if you look out your window, if there's at least some living stuff out your window, most of the living stuff you see out your window is green. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so the question is, why is there so much plant biomass? Mm. And kind of in some of the ideas that I sort of set the stage with here, it's understandable why people would think of the first answer to that question is that, well, there's a lot of plant biomass because plants have abundant resources available to them, right? We're right. We're in this era where we very well understand that you throw a bunch of additional resources into the ground and increase the resource pool for the plants and you're going to get more plant biomass. Mm-hmm. Many more people than today were involved in agricultural at this time and so had a much more firsthand experience of this phenomenon where you add more resources to the system and you get more plant biomass. So it seemed obvious that the answer to why is the earth green was that, well, because its resources are abundant for plants okay. and they can grow. And then that logic of the amount of biomass at a given trophic level being determined by the resources available to it can be extended to the rest of the food web. So if you want more cattle, you feed them more hay, right? Mm. And if you want more hay, you fertilize your hay fields. Okay. And so by charging more resources at the bottom, you get more of the plants and when you have more plants, you have more herbivores. When you have more herbivores, you have more predators and and on up it goes. And so I see what you're saying. So so sort of building up from the bottom, you're saying as long as we have water and we have nitrates and we have other things for the plants, then they will provide resources for bugs and things like that. And those bugs then will provide resources for this whole food web of birds or whatever. And then we eat the birds for Thanksgiving and so forth. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. And so understand. Understandably, this is called bottom-up control. Okay. So the biomass of a trophic level is determined by the resources available to it. That makes sense, yeah. And I mean, there are entire aisles at home goods stores dedicated to this proposition where you can go and buy fertilizer and add more resources to your garden or your lawn and boom, you get more plant biomass as a result, right? So I'm I'm not saying that it's wrong. What I am saying is that at the time, there were some ecologists who thought that that might not be the whole story. And some observations that suggested this is that if you looked at herbivore damage on leaves, it seemed like herbivores sure were leaving a lot of food on their plate. Mm. And so those herbivores were clearly not consuming nearly as much as they possibly could. They so could you're saying herbivores... like bugs will eat the leaves, but they won't eat every leaf on a tree. And why is that? Right, because you would think if there's plenty of food available, then this bug or whatever would just have lots and lots of offspring. And mm-hmm. then if there's still plenty of food available, then all those offsprings would have offspring and Mm-hmm. And it would just grow exponentially from there. You're saying that's ahead, not sorry. the case. Yeah, exactly. But they're not. They're not doing that. And so what is it then that is limiting herbivore biomass? And so perhaps at the time there was still some lingering cultural memory of locust plagues, like mm-hmm. from the late 1800s when 
these massive populations of locusts would fly out and blot out the sun because there were so many of them and they would descend onto fields of crops and and just completely destroy an entire field of crops you know actually literally eat all of the plants yeah and so that fact demonstrates that plant biomass very well could be under the control of the activity of the herbivores. So it can't be that it's just nothing more than resources at the bottom. There there must be something else going on at the top because of those two things, right? Okay. Herbivores aren't outstripping their resources but they could. So why right. not? And we know of examples where plants really can get completely stripped of their green growing vegetation by herbivores. Hmm. And so it suggests that something else is at play. And so the idea is that perhaps it's the predators in a food web that keep the population of their prey in check. And in doing so, that affects the prey of the prey. So this is like the Lion King version of it, that the lions are at the top of the food chain uh-huh. and they have to, Mufasa was telling Simba, like, we have to eat this prey, otherwise they'll destroy the land. And so we keep this delicate eco balance going on. There you go. Yeah. But I had totally forgotten that part of, of Lion King. Well, so... That's one I haven't seen in a long time because I think it's a little bit too scary for my kids. Plus the whole patricide idea. I don't want to give them any ideas. <laughs> so at the time, the progenitors of this idea of that predators might be controlling herbivore populations, which would then explain why herbivores are not eating all the plants, is attributed to these three scientists, last names Hairston, Smith, and Slobotkin. And so this idea, ecologists just abbreviated HSS. So if you, you know. Smart, yeah. Yeah. And so the the HSS idea. So you had convinced me that it has to be bottom up. And now you're saying that's wrong. So now it's just top down. So you're saying that the, <laughs> the predators are controlling the herbivores, the herbivores are controlling the plants. And so that's how we keep everything in balance. So the apex predators are the most important part of this ecosystem. Perhaps, right? And so this top-down control, as you just described it, the term came to be called a trophic cascade, where upper trophic levels affect the abundance of their prey, who in turn affect the abundance of their prey, who in turn affect the abundance of their prey. And so Uh if you sort of imagine this simple three-level food web like we've been talking about so far, where if we have abundant predators keeping herbivore populations depressed, then Mm -hmm. plants can flourish. But what if you add a predator of the predator so that second level predator keeps the first level predator's population depressed? Mm -hmm. And then what's going to happen? Well, then the herbivores will flourish more. Yeah. So then herbivore population expands. And then what happens to the plants? Then the plant population decreases. And yeah, plants get, yeah, exactly. And then what if you have a third level predator? Okay, I see where you're going with this. So then if we have a third predator there, that would take down the population of the second predator, mm-hmm. which would allow the first predator to thrive again. But then mm-hmm. that would cut down on the herbivore population, uh-huh. which would then make more plant life. Exactly. So it's and sort so- of like in every other... Like you skip a, a generation type thing, like every other one is important <laughs> or, or something. Well, yeah. So it's like the difference between an odd versus an even number of trophic levels Yeah, is what the general idea was that developed around this. These trophic cascades 
um, occur. And if you've got an odd number of trophic levels, then you might expect high plant abundance. And if you have an even number of trophic levels, you might expect lower plant abundance Okay. because of those cascading effects. That That's the idea. So, okay. So what about starting to investigate this? And the obvious approach is to compare food webs that are equal in as many ways as possible, but just one of them has some member of a higher trophic level, and then the other has had that higher trophic level removed in some way. And then you Mm. see how the other trophic levels respond to the presence or absence of this higher trophic level species. And if they end up basically those food webs are remain pretty much the same, then that would sort of nullify or at least not support this trophic cascade top-down effect idea. Mm -hmm. However, if you see big differences in community composition or food web structure between those two scenarios, then that suggests that those higher level predators have an important impact on the trophic levels below them. Yeah. Okay. And so enter Robert Payne and he got a job at uh, University of Washington and started working in these rocky intertidal habitats along the the Olympic Peninsula, along the coast of Washington. And Oh, up where there's a lot of crab. Yeah, lots of crab and amazing, amazing tide pools along that that Mm. stretch of the Olympic Peninsula. Like, highly recommend. That's Um, where I first swam in the Pacific Ocean. Was up. Is that right? Yeah. On purpose? On purpose, yeah. Okay. (laughs) It was just me and some other guy like way down who were actually in the water and we're just standing there and we kind of gave each other a fist bump. You know, super cold. It was freezing. Yeah. It was not freezing. Was it summer? It was summertime. Yeah. But it was really cold. Yeah. (laughs) It's still super cold. Yeah. People who don't live out here don't realize how cold the Pacific Ocean can be. No. Pools. Like whenever we go to the coast, even in the summer, we're bringing like jackets and stocking caps. But yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that. That's this rocky inner tidal that's got sort of like tall rock walls and stuff. And it's mussels and barnacles and snails and limpets and chitons and starfish and anemones and sponges mm-hmm. and algae all over you know, like a diverse assemblage of these intertidal species. And one such species is this sort of bright reddish orangey starfish called Pisaster. It's like the starfish that many people think of when they think of a starfish, you know, this sort of bright orangish red characteristic five arm looking thing. And I, I thought we're not supposed to call them starfish anymore. Is that right? Sea stars? Sea is stars. That, I, that's sea what stars, I was told. I, I thought a biologist would know, but you know. <laughs> Yes. Okay. I deserve that because I can be a bit of a pedant on these issues. <laughs> so thanks for reining me in. I'll... You're a you're a disaster when it comes to the disaster. Disaster. <laughs> uh, oh, nice. So because Rob Payne was a student of Smith, he was very familiar with these ideas of potential top-down control of a food web mm-hmm. and was interested in looking for ways to test these hypotheses. And so he did this simple experiment where, well, well, first what he did is he made a lot of observations and he saw these pisaster and he would pluck them off of the walls and he would see what they were eating because mm-hmm. what they do their mouth is like on the bottom side, right in the center of where all of those arms come together. Right. And so their little tube feet will grab onto their food and either move it towards their mouth or they will position their mouth over their prey item if their prey item is attached to the substrate. And then those little tube feet, if it's like a muscle or a clam or something, will grab onto the shell and sort of pry it open just enough 
mm-hmm. so that then the sea star can avert its stomach into the open shell, digest the contents, and then slurp it back in. And so he was, would pluck the sea stars off of the walls, and just the thing that they seemed to be getting their most nutrition from were these mussels. Mm. They would eat lots of things. They had a diverse diet. They ate the barnacles. They ate the limpet. They ate all of it. Okay. Not quite all of it. They didn't eat the anemones or the sponges or the algae. But like they're kind of like a, a generalist predator that okay. ate a lot of these things. You said it's it put its stomach in the... That's its stomach. Yeah. It averts its stomach into the... So yeah. it's, it's basically like all of its acid and stuff, it pumps in there and then mm-hmm. it sucks it back out once it eats everything inside. So Yeah. So what he did then recognizing that Pisaster is clearly a higher trophic level organism in this food web. They're not by any stretch the most abundant animal there, but they are an animal that is present, relatively common, and clearly a predator, a generalist predator. And so what he did is he would just pluck the sea stars off of the wall, off of the rocks, and just chuck them out into the ocean. (laughs) And so... It was creating this community from which the top predator had been removed. And then, of course, he had a control community that he continued to track where he did not do that manipulation. And so pretty, pretty quickly, like within weeks to months, he started to notice that the composition of the communities was changing and that what started out as a community composition of about 15 species through time was reduced down to about half of that, eight species. Oh, interesting. So it made sense that whatever was there would increase, right? Because it's not being eaten, it's just going to keep growing. But that, uh, why would the diversity decrease then? I mean, it just seems like everything would just thrive without something there to gobble it down. Because these are not, I mean, you said sponges and anemone and all these other things. They're not eating each other, though. Exactly. So we're not on this chain like we just set up of like, okay, well, this predator eats that predator eats this other thing. They're just all kind of hanging out there. Exactly. That's the question, right? And so he didn't just remove one species from the food web. By removing that one species, he also lost another seven species. Hmm. And so some of the things just basically went away. And over time, the mussels, if you've ever been to the coast and you've seen those little black mussels, right? Mm -hmm. That particular mussel just started to expand its range and expanded and expanded and expanded and just kind of took over until what had previously been a pretty diverse community of rock clinging invertebrates, mm-hmm. snails, limpets, chitons, barnacles, different kinds of mussels, you know, was almost entirely those black mussels. Interesting. They they could outcompete everything else. Exactly. And the thing was that the the starfish was able to, that was its favorite, the mussels. And so, okay. I, okay. Yeah. And I'm so that, that very much supports the idea that a predator can control the, or can affect what's going on at lower trophic levels mm-hmm. by controlling their prey population. And so that, that of course, is a key tenet of HSS's top-down control idea. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, wasn't just the mussels whose relative abundance changed, he showed that the presence or absence of a single species had this disproportionately large effect on the structure of the entire web, Hmm. including non-prey species, things that he didn't eat at all, like 
different kinds of algae or sponges or anemone, he, the starfish doesn't even hardly interact with those at all, other than just maybe passing by and waving hello, but mm -hmm. their abundance changed as well. And so Payne was then the person who coined this term of a keystone species as this disproportionately important element to an mm -hmm. overall system that helps maintain its structural integrity. Yeah. And it's an analogy from architecture. Do you know what the keystone is like in an arch? Sure. Yeah. If you're building an arch or a bridge that has arches or something like that, you have all these stones that are angled in such a way that they will form into the arch that you're trying to form. But at the very top of it is what's called the keystone that you, you put this one stone in there that, you know, so from the left hand side, those stones are leaning a little bit to the right. And so you need something to stop them from leaning to the right. And the ones from the right are leaning to the left. So you put this one stone in the middle and it balances everything out. And then you can build on top of that and it's it's supported completely. So you you can have an arch, you can have a doorway. And right. But that, that one stone in the middle there, that's what's called the keystone. And if you remove the keystone... Disaster. Everything just falls down. <laughs> yeah, it collapses. And so I think that uh, it makes for such a vivid metaphor that mm. the idea really took hold because mm -hmm. you've got this architectural analogy and it, and it seems to aptly describe what he was seeing about how the removal of this one species had this very large consequence for the stability of the entire food web. Yeah. And, and it is, it is surprising that it's also affecting parts of the food web that are not directly affecting each other. Like if you were drawing out your web here, you would not say like the sponge is just kind of doing its own thing. It's not really mm -hmm. connected to the muscles. It's not like the muscles are like glomping onto the sponges or anything like that. So you would think that this food web, like they're just on different webs, like they wave at each other, but they don't, you know, they don't do anything with each other. But you're saying here that, well, in reality, this can affect those webs as well. So yeah, that's interesting. And it, it probably comes down to space is what they're competing for. Because once the sea stars were removed from the equation, mm -hmm. the muscles were competitively superior and the sea stars were no longer there to keep their populations in check. And what all of these things need in addition to a food resource is space itself as a resource. Yeah. And so things kind of get crowded out. And for the sponges, as you were saying, it's not necessarily that the muscles are eating them or anything. It's just that new sponges couldn't really establish because there's so many damn muscles now. Mm. So, yeah. And subsequent to that, there have been a, a number of other example studies of keystone species like wolf populations, for example, being extirpated from the American West resulted in this massive increase in various ungulate populations. You're throwing a lot of words out there. Ungulate. Uh, hoofed animals, deer, elk, that kind of thing. Okay. That completely changed the plant communities as a result of the abundance of the deer and elk that were now munching on them. And so then mm. with the reintroduction of wolves in some places that has had this effect of uh, once again controlling the hoofed animal populations and, and plant communities are changing a little bit again. Some of the more recent work on keystone species, like, like I said at the top, it's this idea that I think is one of the more beloved ideas by ecologists because it's just such an interesting concept. It's got such a beautiful analogy to help understand what it is. It seems to have a pretty robust explanatory power. 
Mm-hmm. But it's one of those situations where you you need to be kind of careful about the utility of metaphors in okay. how it can affect your thinking on an issue. And so it can help clarify a concept by making it into this readily understandable language, right? Just as an arch collapses when you remove the keystone, mm-hmm. we might see a food web collapse when its keystone species is removed. Sure. But it can also kind of channelize our thinking about something. One thing is that a hidden assumption in this metaphor is that all arches, keystones operate the same way everywhere. An arch built in Greece functions the same way as an arch built in England functions the same way as an arch built on Mars. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's just sort of like an, a tenet of physics. But that might not necessarily be the case about keystone species, right? Even though we might be led to think that, oh, keystone species and, and it should be functioning the same everywhere. So in thinking about this keystone idea, it might lead us into thinking that we should expect this particular sea star as a keystone species to be affecting all of the communities that it's a part of across its entire range in the same way. Oh, so you're saying that maybe sea stars in California are not as important as the ones up in this area in Washington. Right. And so more recent research is starting to add a little bit of nuance to the idea that certainly nobody is suggesting that in the field site where Payne did his work, that that's not what was going on. But what if we start to change some of the other environmental parameters that might also affect the living things in the system? And then maybe suddenly that sea star doesn't have quite as much of an effect Mm. because maybe other things are now more important of the relevant trophic level populations. Mm. And so it's just a reminder that ecology is this very complex thing with lots of variables that we try to come up with concepts or general principles. And often some of them can be broadly applied successfully, Mm -hmm. but it's always worth having the humility to recognize that there might be some scenarios where it breaks down. And that's actually where it gets interesting because then that's where the science happens and you start to figure out, ah, what's different about this case? Right. So anyway, I think we got there. We finally got to keystone species, but we had to go through what what I think is an interesting history. But no, that's cool. So so it's not quite that it's all top down. It sounds to me like the the distinction with the keystone is that it's not just a top down predator type situation. It's also that inadvertently just with space or whatever, you could affect other species that would not necessarily fit nicely in this web idea. Yeah. And yeah, to get back to the bottom up top down idea, you know, I mentioned that you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's and find all kinds of fertilizer Mm -hmm. that takes advantage of the fact that yes, it is true that you can grow more plants if you give them more resources. Mm -hmm. So yes, bottom up is a, a thing, but you can also go to your garden center and buy ladybird beetles or praying mantis egg cases or Mm -hmm. other kinds of predators. And that kind of gardening approach is taking advantage of what we've learned about top-down control of herbivores, right? You're Mm. not releasing ladybird beetles because they're going to do something directly to the plants. You're releasing ladybird beetles in the hopes that they eat the herbivores, thereby benefiting your plants, right? So you're applying a top-down approach. Hmm. And so what do I do? I do a little bit of both. All right. Well, thank you, Chad. Yeah. 
This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have questions about big ideas in science and you would like us to talk about those, email us at crisscrossingscienceatgmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>